0: Part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at ww.corn dashstone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Open your Bibles to Malachi Chapter 1. We're going verse by verse through Malachi. We're going to make the attempt to kind of close out Chapter 1 because what we see here in verses 6 through 14 is uh in a way, a second indictment that God brings against the the nation of Israel, uh, you could say Judah, uh, but the people, the Jewish people, His people. And let's go back really quick. Just three things that I want to remind you. If you have not been here the last couple of weeks since we started Malachi, so that you can hear this in context, the book of Malachi starts in very first uh, the very first verse, called and he says the oracle of uh, Malachi or of the Lord to Malachi. And we said that that word oracle means burden. This is a hard word, but remember what we stated that first week, a hard word can be a good word. And we use that term that we often hear, tough love. And tough love is always hard. I mean, to go tell somebody that you love, that there's perhaps error in their life, and and that you're not coming there to judge them or condemn them, but you do want to point out you love them enough to confront them. Um, When opportunity rises, for that's just a tough word, but a tough word can be a good word. And so we see that from the very beginning of this book. And God begins to um, correct Israel because he has this covenant love that even though they've rebelled against him, he's going to be faithful. And we see that, that throughout the word of God. Even when you've been unfaithful, God says, I will be faithful to my people. And then we saw last week that, um, that God in this questioning of the people, his people, he, he's not afraid to bring the indictment against them. So here's the mindset. If you can picture a courtroom, pretty easy for you to do, Andy. God is bringing an indictment, the truth of the case that he has against Israel. He's not doing that mean-spirited. He's doing that in love. That's why he said in verse 2, I have loved you. And when he said, I have loved you, that that Hebrew word really does have the connotation, I have loved you, I do love you, I will love you. It is a word that really does talk about his covenant love and that he's going to continue to love them in that covenant love. When you begin to understand that structure and that this is kind of a courtroom, what we will see in the book of Malachi is seven different indictments that God brings against this nation. And they, uh, spiritual laziness, like we're going to see today, they are just lacking in their worship. They're not worshiping from the heart. They're just kind of going through the motions. I don't know that there's a single Christian that I know that can't identify with that. I mean, every one of us. I mean, there have been. Have you ever been in your devotion, and you, you opened up, and you read, and you spent five minutes, and maybe you even prayed, and then the minute you got done, you're going, I don't even remember what I just read. I mean, it was just like 30 seconds ago, and you just kind of went through the motions. And it's one of those things that God loves us enough that he's calling out the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, uh, and he's kind of doing that to, to so that they can bring correction. And he does it through this form of indictment. And he gives them a chance to respond. And every time they respond, they really do come back with this response that doesn't look that favorable. They actually ask, how? So it's like a parent going to a child and said, okay, you've done this. And instead of saying, I agree, I messed up, Mom. Sorry, Dad, please forgive me. I said, how have I done that? And there's a little bit of disrespect that there's a little bit of uh, do you not really understand what you've done? There's all of that kind of complicating this a little bit. So let's jump right in Malachi chapter one, verse six, and we're going to see the next indictment that God justly has against his people. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priest who despised my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? God uses two analogies. A father-son relationship, a master-servant relationship. He said, if I look at that from just a human standpoint, is there not a level of respect that's supposed to be for the one who is in authority to the one who is under authority? And so he gives two very natural kind of things that we could see there. Two analogies, son, father, servant, master. One charge, you have despised my name. And we're going to see the ramifications of that and how he fleshes that out. And then one questioning response from the people. How have we despised your name? Now, if you grasp what's happening in verse six, you're going to do really well with Malachi because it's going to be repetitive form. God brings indictment. the people hear it? They kind of wonder, what have we really done? And God is kind enough. I want you to be able to see this, that when God bring, begins to bring the evidence against them, does God have to do that? No. Could God simply say, you mean you really, you're not aware of what's going on? Forget you. But that is not the covenant love that he has for us. He loves these people. He's claimed these people. He has chosen these people. And so he gives them the evidence against them. Not so that they, he's not wiping their nose in the dirt. He's doing it so that there can be a a repentance in their heart and a change. Some of the times in my life when somebody brought to attention my sin, I usually have had two polar reactions. Great indignancy, and pride and my first thought, well, you're not perfect either. Anybody else had that response, everyone? There's been other times by the grace of God, not by the goodness of my heart, but by the grace of God, where you soften my heart, and you realize your sin, and you ran to the cross, and you were able to say, "God, thank you that you already sent an answer to my sin." The problem is, <laughs> the same person on any given day, on any given hour, can be over here or over here. This country, these people can do that. You can do that. Your friends, your family that may find themselves in sin, they can have that response that is broken or they can have that response that is rebellious and indignant and say, well, you're not perfect either. What we begin to see here for the whole rest of the chapter is the grace of God to actually give this nation, this people that he's called, the evidence of what he means that they have uh, uh, despised his name. Now, one of the hardest parts of understanding scripture is knowing how to interpret tone. Have you ever got a text message before and you read it? You know, you're, you're smart enough to read words and yet you don't know, you're in a quandary because you're okay, are they mad? I could take this from being, they're really mad, or are they sad? And you don't know the tone. It's not like being on the phone where you can actually hear some inflection of voice and other things. You just have the text. And when we read the text, sometimes because of the other evidence that we see around it, that's why we always want to look at Scripture in context. And we can figure out that tone. But there are going to be times that sometimes we wonder, what really is the tone? So when the people say, how? How? We don't know the fullness. We certainly see rebellion, but is there some ignorance there? A better word for ignorance, I think, is a cluelessness. I can on- honestly say that when I was 11, 12, 13, probably about there, uh, when there was a great distance between my, my mouth and my brain, that there were times that my mom, and if you've grown up with a mom, you've heard this before. If you're... 11, 12, 13, and there was a distance between your brain and your, your, your mouth. It's not what you said. It's, yeah. Tone. Tone is everything sometimes. Here's the honest thing, guys. We don't know the exact tone by which they ask this question. How? Certainly we see some rebellion in it. Certainly we see that they're not acknowledging that they could actually, you know, they're not owning unto this. But is there a little bit of this cluelessness? In verse 2, when God says, I have loved you, the people's response was, how have you loved us? In one way that looks so incredulous. How can you ever ask God how he's loved you? And yet, when is it possible? Here, here's the big question for the morning. Is it possible for Christian people to become so dull spiritually that we are clueless to our offense? is it possibly clueless and culpable, responsible at the same time? I believe that we can make a case for that biblically. Not because God, you know, it's not really ignorance. I used the word ignorance before. I really want to use the word clueless. Because ignorance is almost like, okay, we didn't have maybe even access to that information. Clueless is the information has been there. It should have already registered. But somehow you're just so dull for that moment, so full of yourself or whatever it is, your pride or whatever, that you've been rendered clueless. I told some of the elders and when we were talking this morning, I said, you know, my illustration here, every husband knows the answer to this. Because has there been times that, <laughs> that we honestly were clueless? and yet we were held culpable, that our wife, your wife looks at you like, do you not really know what you did? And you are as honest as you can be, and you say, I don't. <laughs> I'm struggling here. And her anger against you is, but you should know. Can anybody relate to that illustration? Okay, there we go. That's what's going on here. Can you be clueless and yet culpable at the same time? I believe that you can. But that cluelessness is not because God has withheld information. It's not because, God, you know, you're just ignorant. It's because you are so spiritually dull at that moment. You have left the Word. You have left training. You have left discipleship. You have left accountable relationships. And there's a moment that you have strayed so far from God. You haven't lost your salvation because that's secure in Christ, but yet you are spiritually dull. And at that point, you can be in the midst of sin and really clueless. You should be clueless but because of the heaviness of that sin, the darkness of that sin, you are. I think that's where Jewish people are. I think that's why they ask the question, how? There is a part of pride of that, but I think that they are clueless because of their own rebellion and their spiritual apathy. One of the things that makes the the book of Malachi kind of distinct from the other minor prophets in its setting, the other minor prophets were given a word from the Lord almost always in response to some chaos that was going on. They either were about to be taken into captivity or they had just come out of captivity. So there was always this sense of urgency. Now, when there's a sense of urgency in your life, do you find yourself becoming more spiritually aware or kind of unaware? Most of us. Again, I was sharing this morning. I said, I've pastored for 37 years in the same church for 23 years and all of a sudden you hadn't seen a family for two or three years and then for five weeks they're front and center or something like that and i'm going something's going on in their life a sense of urgency has brought them to a place where they're wondering they're they're needing something from god and it's brought about maybe even accountability maybe a stirring of the heart and the mind this is a good thing But one of the things that we just don't handle well in humanity, and I would include Christian humans in this, is success and prospering. Because when success, when when there is no battle, when we don't see this, what we were just saying, this battle line around us and that we're surrounded by this army, we become sometimes, the temptation is to become spiritually lethargic. Would you agree with that? That some of the most... Wonderful times of you experience the fullness of God in your life were desperate times in your life. God, I have nobody, but I have you. And then other times that we didn't say it out loud, but we could have said, I don't need anybody because life is good. We've all experienced that. And I think that's a little bit of what's going on here. There's no urgency. There's no Assyrian army. There's no Babylonian army coming in ready to take them back into captivity. And they have become spiritually dull and they've been very complacent in their worship. And that's when God begins to bring a charge. The charge in verse six, you have despised my name. Their response, how? And in the grace and the kindness of God, he actually tells them. He does not owe them an explanation He could write them off at that moment, but because he is a God who is faithful to his covenant and to his promises, he actually responds. Now again, let's think back to the parent-child relationship. If you heard a tone of rebellion and your child says, that little five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old, eight-year-old, whatever, and you said, Johnny, you've done this and this is wrong. And it's not a spirit of total clueless. What have I done wrong? But it's like, how have I done wrong? And you can see in little Johnny's spirit, the back is bowed and they're looking at you. How? At that moment, is it full humanity to say, well, little Johnny, let's sit down and let me tell you about five or six things that you've done this week that are in error here. Is that how you parent most of us parent from, you have the audacity with that tone to ask, how? Oh, I'll tell you how. I mean, that's how I'm coming back. And there's a part of that that we see in God. And yet what we see is this redeeming grace. And we see this as redeeming love. It's really amazing. He begins to tell them, verse 7 and 8. How have you despised my name? Verse 7, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. He's talking about the altar. They were still under animal sacrifice, not for a payment of their sins, but for a covering of their sins. Only Christ is going to come and pay for their sins. The final perfect lamb. But in the Old Testament, we see that God has this temporary thing pointing to ultimately Christ where they would come and they would bring a lamb or a goat or a bull or sometimes a bird, whatever the family could afford. But they would bring that and they would bring that and it would be a temporary kind of covering, if you want to say, for their sin until Christ comes. And he says, okay, how have you done this? Verse 8, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not... Evil. He doesn't say, is that just wrong? He calls what he said, this is evil. You bring a sacrifice and it's a defective sacrifice. This is evil. And he calls it out. And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to to the governor and will he accept you or show you favor? He said, look, if if you had an important magistrate come into the house, and would you... (laughs) This lamb that you bring to me that's all defective and mangy and all these other diseases, foaming at the mouth, you bring that to the altar of God? And yet if the governor was coming over, are you going, Governor, look what we're having for dinner. A foaming, mangy mouth, you know, goat. He he paints illustration that they already know the answer. Of course you would never serve that, especially to a dignitary and yet they are serving it to God. God responds to their question with real evidence. In that sacrificial system, they knew the truth. This is the part where they're not ignorant. Because if you notice the indictment first and foremost, even though it's to the people, who does it come through? Who does God kind of center out first? Did anybody pick that up? The priest. Now, why would he do that? because they have the responsibility of making sure that they're leading the people spiritually. And when they allow this bad sheep or this infected you know, goat to come and they accept it, they've allowed for the people to do less than what God demanded. And so they are culpable here and they should not have been clueless because God states it in many, many places. Leviticus chapter 22, verse 18 through 20. If you have your Bible open there real quick, Leviticus chapter 22, because I want you to, again, learn what is the heading over that section? Leviticus 22, verse 18 through 20. What is the heading in your Bible over that? What was that, Tracy? unacceptable sacrifices. So even though that's not the word of God, you know, we've just put that back in there to give clarification. We know what this passage is going to be about. Anybody else have something that's different from that? Says it a little bit differently? Flawless animals for sacrifice? Flawless animals for sacrifice? Okay. Offerings. Unacceptable offerings. Are acceptable. And he's gonna show, you know, the, the plus and the minus of that, both sides of that. Okay, so that's the context of this. Now look what he actually says. Speak to Aaron, you know, Moses' brother, but he was gonna be the, the head of the Levites, and his sons and all the people of Israel, and say to them, when any one of the house of Israel, or any of the sojourners in Israel, present a burnt offering as his offering, for any of their vows or free will offerings that they offer to the Lord, Verse 19, if it is to be accepted, you must make, uh, it shall be a male with what? Without blemish. Of the bulls, the sheep, or the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. I, I don't accept that as a sacrifice. Should the priest even though that was a Levitical law way back here, and they're living, you know, hundreds of years later, should they have known that? Yeah. Would there be an expectation that you would have of this pastor, Pastor Jeff, of our elders, that if you came to them, not that they have all knowledge. We're far from that. But if it was something that was just a really biblical matter that was pretty stated pretty plainly, would you expect us to have some of a, somewhat of a grasp on that? But it hurts your heart if all of a sudden we got, you know, we're clueless on that. That's why he goes to the priest first. He said, guys, you know, my, my complaint is with the people too, but you're the one who has actually allowed it. And you have the responsibility to lead them well. And you've allowed them to bring these, uh, inferior sacrifices. God even calls out their culpability by giving that an example in in verse 8. I mean, God is a common sense God. And sometimes when we say, you know, I don't understand, that's just a deep spiritual meaning. God comes back with these illustrations. Hey, that lamb that you brought to me, (laughs) if the governor was coming over, would you bring that to supper? And we get this obvious answer. Now again, does God owe the priest and the people of Israel an answer like that? This is grace. This is his kindness that he would give them and that he would even illustrate it so that it would kind of sink down and that they would fill the the full weight of that. Malachi uh, chapter one, verse nine, look what he says. Why would you do this and expect a favor from God? Verse nine, and now entreat the favor of God that he would be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand that he would show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts that we would bring this inferior thing and expect God to bless us and, you know, okay, God, I, I really want a good life. He said, how can you have that expectation? Years ago, anybody remember Paul Harvey? And I know I'm speaking to the older part of the crowd now. Okay, Paul Harvey, for the most part. And uh, this lady called in and she had a question or she was had comments and he, he I'm sorry, she called into the Butterball Hotline and he was telling this story. And it was Thanksgiving, and she had called, you know how butterball, if it's a butterball turkey, you can call the hotline and ask your questions. And she, he's telling them a real story. This really happened. And she had a turkey that had been in the freezer for 23 years. <laughs> and so she called the butterball hotline, she said, can I serve this to my family? And the expert on the other side said, you can, it won't make you sick, but it will not taste. It's lost its flavor, it's passed its useful life, and so it's really no good. It won't make you sick, because it's been frozen, but it's no good. Her response, well then I'll donate it to the church. Oh Sherry's there from iServe. Does that sound somewhat familiar sometimes? <laughs> yeah. Do you see the parallel? well, you know, this is not good enough for my family and this is not good enough for my uncle and, or for the grandfather coming in town. You know, I'll just give it to the church. <coughs> why would we offend God in such a way? Now, I'm not coming from the stance of, you know, that y'all have offended us with your offerings or something like that in the church. I'm just saying, why would we even have, how could we even entertain that thought in our mind? that something that was not good enough for us somehow, somehow is acceptable unto the Lord. That's what God is pointing out. And he's kind to do that. That's a form of grace that he would, hey, would you serve this to the governor? He didn't have to add that in there. But he does because he wants to see the starkness of the reality of their sin. Verse 10, to show his level of displeasure with this, look what he actually says. Oh, that there were one among you, he's talking mainly to, to the priest here, all that there were one among you that would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. You know what he's saying? I'd rather you not have church at all than if you're going to have church and it's going to be a profanity to me. He said, I just wish that there was one priest. I just wish there was one that would stand out among these people and say, you know, we can't do this, guys. This is offensive to holy God. And I shut the doors until the people have a changed heart, until I have a a leadership's heart that is going to hold them accountable. He said, I just wish there was one among you that would do that. This is a sad indictment, guys. This was pervasive among the people. So how does this apply to us? Let me give you two applications. Because it's easy for us to read a story that was 2,500 years ago and say, okay, now I know the history of that story. But the Word of God is the living Word of God. And even the oldest stories in the Bible have application, timeless truths for you and I as modern day Christians and followers of Christ to apply to our lives. So how do we apply this passage to us? Well, one is quite obvious to examine our hearts for true worship. But let's look at two different things. Religious activity does not equal true relationship. Were the Jewish people religiously active? Oh, they were bringing, you know, goats and bulls and defective this and defective that. They were going through the motions. They were going to the temple. They were doing all the things... An emotion, but there wasn't the purity of it. And we've already admitted that even as modern-day Christians, sometimes that's an easy little kind of training wheel to get in. Religious activity does not equal true relationship. That's why you use, I believe, the, the illustration of father-son, master-servant. He said, am I really your father and you, are you really my son? Are we really talking about real relationship here? If there's no obedience whatsoever, if there's no respect, if there's this distance between us? Yes, maybe there is a, a genetic you know, connection between father and son. But is there a relationship between father and son? And God asked that of his people. Nowhere in the Bible does it guarantee that just because we do a religious activity that we have a relationship with the Holy God. Modern-day application, you could come to church week after week after week after week. You could go to church 52 weeks out of the year, even on vacation, even when you're out of from, from the community, and you could go. And you could read your Bible every day. You could say prayers every day. But if your heart is not following God and serving God... You're just going through the emotions uh, or the emotions of it and it does not dictate true relationship. Jesus spoke to this. I always want to make sure that if we're going to make a bold statement like that, can we back it up with Scripture? Is this really what Scripture says? Look what Jesus said. I'll give you two occasions. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me what? Lord, Lord. Now, Lord, Lord is a sign of respect, subservient. You know, if somebody is authoritative over you. You're the, the subservient. When you called someone, if you came up to me and said, Lord, Bobby, somehow you're implying that I'm here and you're there. That's never happened in my entire life and I don't expect it to start today. But Lord, Lord is a destination of... of, of Authority. And look what Jesus says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. Now, I want to be very, very clear. We do not earn our salvation through our obedience. If that was the case, there would never be one person saved. There is not one of us that on our own wanted to be obedient to God through His grace, through the Holy Spirit, bringing conviction to our lives. You know, God shows us our sin, and He shows us the Savior. So this is not talking about you're saved because you've been obedient. What He's saying is, when you are saved, truly saved, guess what? There's going to be this heart of obedience in your life. He said, this is going to you get married your husband and wife, does it guarantee obedience? Doesn't guarantee it, but is it expected? Yeah. So look what he says. On that day, many of verse twenty-two. On that day, many will say to me, "Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name?" In other words, there was a lot of spiritual activity going on. God, we did all kinds of spiritual activity. Verse 23, and then I will I declare them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Is it possible to have spiritual activity without true relationship? Yeah. Jesus said this a little bit later. In fact, in the immediate verses. Remember the story about the man who built his life on the rock and the other one that built it on the sand? Do you know that that's the illustration that God tied to this? I mean, look at the very next verse, Matthew seven twenty four and 25. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And he goes on to talk about the unwise man, the foolish man, who built his house without that relationship. God ties a very important thing here. We're not saved because of our good works, but we are saved. And if we are going to be followers of Jesus Christ, there is this expectation that we would have this relationship that so understands the authority of the Father that we would want to be obedient to the Father. Now again, guys, we live in rebellion to that from time to time. There's not one of us that for a 24-hour period can say, hey, this past 24 hours, I've been totally obedient to the Father's will and not my own will. But should that not be characteristic of our life? That's what God is saying. Not that we gain salvation because of our achievements and our good works, but that when God graciously has given us salvation, that there just should be this heart that, God, how, do I, how can I serve you? And I want to do this. My flesh wants to do this. But God, you've told me that the wise way, the smart thing, is to do this. And so God, I want to tell that person off because they offended me. And and you said, go apologize and forgive them. Wow. I don't want to do that. But you're my father. And you forgave me. And so I... In that relationship of forgiveness that you gave to me, Father, I I don't want to, but help me to have the ability to go forgive that person of how they've offended me. Do you see how that works? doesn't mean that it has to be, oh, I can't wait till the morning. I'm going to make a beeline over to that person's desk at work, and I'm going to tell them, you know, if I have offended you in any way, even though you're the one that offended me, if I've offended you in any way, I apologize, and and I put myself there before you, And I'm, I'm sorry that this happened. He said, that's the sign that there's a true relationship between me and you. Second, uh, practical application, then we'll go. Religious activity does not equal true worship. Doesn't indicate true relationship, but it also doesn't equal true worship. Were the priests, again, I'm going to ask you, were the priests and the people in Malachi 1 doing religious activity? Were they coming to the temple? Were they bringing you know, their sacrifices? Yes, they were doing religious activity, and yet God said that it was defiled and polluted. Why? Because it did not come from their heart. There was no sacrifice. It was their leftovers. Sometimes in our Christian life, we go hours, days, maybe even sometimes weeks of just going through the motions. Because we're in a broken world and we're still, even though God has saved us and he's completely saved us, we still have to deal with the old person, the old man, the old nature. And so there's going to be times in our lives, Christian, that we're saved and yet we just go through this time where there's no real true worship, no real affection to the Father. And that's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. And that's why we need a community of faith around us that's why we need pastors that hold us accountable and love us. That's why we need brothers and sisters that say, hey, you know, I've noticed this. I'm not trying, you know, man, I've gotten sin in my own life, but I've just noticed this, and I love you, and I care about you. And and so, can I help here? Look what he says in verse 13. The Jewish people have, have known God's worthiness better than anyone they could tell the stories of god opening up the seas all these other things and yet look what god says to them but you say what a weariness this is Now, what were they talking about what was weary the preacher saying these people bring their animals in week after week after week they bring it to me we take it we go through the the part of sacrificing and burning it the very thing that was pointing to Jesus, the very thing that God established to cover temporarily their sins, they said, we're so bored with doing this. Is that sad? The very thing that God is pointing to Christ with, that he established for whose benefit? For God's benefit or for the people's benefit? People, yeah. They're the ones that are getting their sins covered by this sacrificial system, and yet they have the audacity to say, What a weariness this is And God even says, and you snort at it. And you turn your nose up to it. Have you ever heard somebody go That would bring passion to your heart, won't it? Husbands and wives, you say something to them? (coughs) Yeah, that's going to be a good afternoon or evening in your house. And yet that's the indictment that God brings against Israel. Folks, all this would be terribly, 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 terribly bad news. And it is. It's an indictment. And yet what we will see in the midst of this letter and all these indictments and these seven, you know, indictments against them of what was wrong in their life, God says this. I love you. I have loved you. I do love you. I will love you. And I'm sending a savior. You haven't cooperated with your side of it. You haven't been a faithful people, but I will be a faithful God. This is amazing, guys. This is the hope for us who are lost. And this is the hope for us who are saved. And yet we see that prone to wander, oh, I feel it, prone to leave the one I love. In that vulnerability of our life, of our flesh, of our just becoming spiritually lethargic, that we have a God who is constant. And here's our life. And here's God. And that's why Jesus is not finishing the work. Guys, Jesus finished the work. It is in the process of being finished. Is that what he said? No, he says, it is finished. And why is that so important? Because Bobby's right here. Bobby's bobbing all over the place. And Bobby's got really passionate days. And mostly those passionate days are the days that I felt great urgency. And when things were going good, Bobby got a really big head and go, man, it's kind, kind of comfortable. I can just kind of sail along. I'm not going to be offensive to God. I just don't need God. Now, I would never say that out loud, but my actions, my spiritual lethargy would kind of give an indication of that. Up and down. Up and down. Up and down. Christ, it is finished. And this is our hope. What a Wonderful God this is. That just doesn't say, hey, Tracy, man, last Thursday, when you helped out that person at work, we saw that high point. Now he looks over. He says, Ricky, remember last Thursday night? I saw that low point. And Christ has covered it. Sorry to pick out you for the high point and you for the low point. Sorry that you're sitting right here. <laughs> Let's reverse that. know <laughs> What a good God. Let's pray together. Father God, we can read this and Father we can see this as just a history lesson but Father we can also, Father by your spirit, by bringing the word alive to us. Father you can show us that... Uh, that we're pretty inconsistent people, Father. And, And Father, there's days that you could bring this indictment to us, to pastors and to a people. And that you could say to us, hey, Bobby, you just brought this to me. Would you bring that to your family? Would you bring that to the neighbor that you invited over for supper? God, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you that you bring us aware that in those times that we have, Father, offended you, that you bring that to our attention. So, Father, for those that are dealing with those out there that uh, are kind of going through those low periods of life, I pray that those people have ears to listen and that you would put a right time in the right place so that your word, your truth would be able to be received. Father, I thank you for those who carry burdens for those that are living outside of your will. Father, I thank you that you're a God who's finished the task of covering our sin, paying for our sin in its entirety forever and always through the finished work of Christ. So Father, we just owe you our praise this morning. We wanna be worshipers that worship in spirit and in truth. We don't want to go through the religious motions of just kind of going through the church, reading the Bible occasionally, maybe saying a prayer before we eat our, our, our supper. Father, we want to be people that know you because you have made yourself known to us. Father, thank you that you've done that. And so, Father, we close this service in this time of being in your word by singing you this praise song because you are worthy of our praise this day. And so we turn our attention and our affection to you as we sing. Father, thank you as we pray this in the hope of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, You can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.